Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the shows on iTunes, Spotify, and all of the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode eight, with the title, How the Term Queer Became Cool Again. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Joseph Galliano. I met Joe following an introduction from a mutual friend, Kate Bosworth, who was the CMO at MSC Saatchi. She thought we'd have loads to talk about, and we did. And I don't think we've stopped talking since. Joe is the co-founder and CEO of Queer Britain, a charity working to establish the first national LGBTQ plus museum. But he's been a journalist, editor of the Gay Times, a book editor, a third sector major donor fundraiser, an ambassador manager, and a senior corporate network leader. <sighs> Surprising has time to do anything else. And I asked Joe to describe his superpower. And he said, other people. So, hello, Joe. Welcome hello, to Joe. the show. <laughs> hello. <laughs> I'm exhausted hearing that. I think I need to have a lie down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have plenty of time for that later, I'm sure. Um, so, tell me, how did the term queer become cool again? It, it's funny because we had quite a long discussion uh, as an organization about what we were going to call ourselves, which was, and that was always the like the hardest thing to do really uh, in the early stages. And um, we really thought about what is it that young people in particular, how do they refer to themselves now? Um, and what is also the most inclusive term under that big long acronym that, um, that rolls on and on. And queer was the only, um, was the only moniker under that acronym that actually everybody can stand underneath so for us it was about being as inclusive as possible um but also i think it's that last little bit of um reclaiming um because it's still problematic for a lot of people yeah of a certain generation i I know many people that when they hear that word it sends shivers down their spine for it's been used as they've heard it so many times as as a word of abuse directed towards them so it's yeah it's i guess been, it's about time it's the well, it's definitely been a been a been a stick to um to beat people um i think you know and it has been used for for a long time i think right back to um lord lord queensbury um oscar wilde's uh Bose's father oscar wilde's lover's father um who um used used queer in that pejorative sense mm-hmm. um one of the things I thought was quite, I certainly make absolutely no claim to having um, been key in um, disarming that word. But if you, I mean, if you go back to, if you go back to the early nineties um, and you look at an organization like a group like Queer Nation, which uh, was a split off from uh, the HIV AIDS um, activist group ACT UP. And they, you know, they, they, um, well, obviously embrace the word queer um, as an act of radical defiance. Yeah, I, I think the the fact that most people now use LGBT 
Q plus, the Q obviously being queer, it's kind of, it's gained acceptance and it's becoming normal conversation. It's part of the, the acronym, if you like, for anyone who doesn't identify either sexually or gender hetero normative, if you like. It's, it's a term for anyone who wants to be or is just themselves. Yeah. It's that, it's that kind of, um, sexual and gender non-conforming. Mm. Um, and I think it can be, there's a beautiful plasticity to it that it can, um, it can be, it can be embraced to mean what you want it to mean. And, uh, outside of kind of academic circles, um, I think that's what people do with it. And I, I that's what I find most exciting about it. Yeah, I'm personally, I'm, I'm comfortable describe myself as queer, um, mm. in a queer community around queer people. I think if someone, as you said, used it pejoratively or, or weaponized it against me, I'd find it offensive. But uh, as an I am moniker, it, it works quite well for me. And that's about that's about control and self-identification, isn't that? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, where, where does the where does the power reside reside in the use of a word? If you can if you can um, take it and use it for yourself, then um, and you can use it affectionately, then that is you're holding that power. Um, and I think that it also, it doesn't, it comes back to exactly like you say there, the intent. Where is the violent, if there's violent intent, then actually you hear the violence rather than the word. Yeah, I suppose you could use any word with violent intent and it would, <laughs> it would sound violent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, flowers. <laughs> don't, <laughs> probably... you, don't you dare hit me with those flowers. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you could probably, you could, yeah, with the right intent or the wrong intent, you can weaponize anything, I guess. So, um, by, as you say, by reclaiming the, the queer as an identity that I'm proud of, mm-hmm. um, I own that and I, I take the power back. So I, I completely understand that. And this is, this is, this is why also like, I mean, particularly for some, you know, for some older people in particular, um, who have had it used against them as a, as a, as a slur. Um, it, it can be hard for people to kind of step outside, step, step away from that pain and, um, which is, which, yeah, which is tough. Mm. So you had this, Crazy idea of uh, of co-founding the first LGBT museum in in the UK or in or fixed fixed space LGBTQ plus museum isn't it? is what is kind of there's been many roaming ones, hasn't there? But this is kind of the first one you're aiming to have a, a fixed permanent home. Yeah, I mean there've been um, you know plenty of uh, really good exhibitions um, and um, you know, great community projects and. Um, uh, and so forth. But this is, this is, this is the first, um, and, and actually not the first attempt to get a project, project like this up and running. Um, but the first attempt for a while, um, to establish a, a national bricks and mortar museum, um, with, and, you know, we'll always, we'll also always do pop-ups around the country and so forth. But, mm. um, but you know, it feels like bricks and mortar is a really important thing in terms of the sort of symbolism of what, what does it mean in terms of, um, how do we, how do we show as a, as a country whose stories and artifacts we value? Um, and how can we own them for ourselves as well? So that was the why. That was the, the reason that you felt was important to create this sort of snapshot, this, this storytelling, capturing the lives and the moments of people 
uh, for future generations, queer and non-queer people. Yeah, and actually, that's that that that's absolutely really vital. Um, is that um, we we think of it as the LGBTQ plus museum for all, regardless of sexuality or gender identity. I keep, I keep coming back to it's the image, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's the image of um, young woman who's just come out to her mother and uh, trying to create somewhere that they can both go to together so they can both come away feeling um, excited to be a part of this set of communities and understanding their own family um, a lot better and um, Mm. coming away just excited with the possibilities of the world and all it can offer. So how have you found it's been received by, well, A, I suppose the queer community and, and B, by the non-queer community? Have, have you found there's a uh, a real kind of, yeah, we need this, or has it been a struggle? No, I've, I've been pushing against, it feels like I've been pushing against one open door after another. Um, feels like a, it feels like an idea whose time you know, really has come. Um, it, it, I, I started, it's so funny, Joe, because I started off, um, in some ways, just sort of thinking, like, what's the most exciting thing I could do right now? And um, I knew emotionally what it meant to me. I know, I know emotionally what it would have meant to me to um, see myself better reflected in the uh, in the culture. Um, I hadn't somehow made that leap as to how that would feel for other people, and, and, and quite often I've been talking to people about what we're doing. Actually, you know, strangely in business meetings or in, um, uh, or with a community activist or, um, you know, and you suddenly realize that they're talking to you, but there's a tear in it. They've, they've kind of welled up. And I think the first few times that happened, um, that was a real signal for me that it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is really important. This is, um, this is something to be carried with a, great sense of responsibility and um I, I feel very privileged to be able to do everything in my power to hold that and make that happen mm. so i suppose in, in the same way that uh, a church is not the building it's the people <laughs> the queer yeah. museum effectively is the community the people coming together the memories it holds that you treasure beyond just just the bricks and mortar yes yeah although i see the bricks and mortar being a very um yeah. strong signal um and that's that's about that's kind of creating the uh creating the um what would the white word be the the crucible for the beacon to be sitting in so that that can be then seen around the world and so that people can see the value in these stories and understand why this is important, that this is important. So some sort of North Star shining light that everyone can yeah. focus on. As, yeah, and no, I get that. I, I mean, one of the things that I, I became, I was aware of when I first met you, we started talking about this. It was just a conversation over a coffee in a cafe, effectively. Uh, I think then I, I came to some of the launch events and I met some of the other people who were involved with the project. And I, I think you hear so much from the community or whatever the community is, the population of people who are queer, about negativity around business, around pinkwashing, around the government, uh, MPs, Parliament, mm. civil servants not representing or not considering queer people. But 
what I was struck by was the the depth and breadth of people involved with the project who are sponsoring it, who are promoting it, who are happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with with with, with the museum. Yeah, uh, from that from that launch at Dover House, the number of people there, and the Devonshire Club, the one there, there was, there was such a number of, of diverse people from all over. Okay, maybe the privileged side of London. Maybe well, to be we fair, started, <laughs> we started yeah. off with uh, you know, very much a focus on on developing a donor community. So, yeah. um, in those early days, yeah, that very much, um, yeah, there was there was there was there was definitely privilege. In those rooms, but you need that. Yeah, that thing is going. Yeah. But I felt it's being wielded for the benefit of the community. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't privilege for privilege sake. It's privilege using its privilege for amplification and to to establish this and, and be a part of it. Yeah, and exactly. be proud and to be proud. I mean, there's many people who are not proud to be openly queer, but in those rooms, there were people who were prepared prepared to be openly queer and back the project. And what is wonderful is is the amount of times you know those people they say, you know, "How can I help?" And that you know, some of the most powerful four words you can hear, aren't they? Really? Yeah, because that was a real powerful. Moment. I think last year there was that event uh, that Coots organised in Four Forty Strand, wasn't there? Where they had the yeah. the massive uh, rainbow stripes on the outside of the uh, their main office, <laughs> their, their flagship global flagship office in London. I, I was um, so I, I can't tell you how much that made me um, both sort of proud and um, give a wry smile. The fact that you know, like the, the Coots had taken such a bold move to um, you know, and, and like for what you know, it's a private bank. You know, that's that's kind of a yeah. pretty, pretty conservative type of organisation. One would think um, the Queen's Bank. And we've slapped the word queer on the front of it um, in one of the most high-profile locations in the country. And, you know, you can talk about pinkwashing, and I don't think in that particular instance that was a demonstration of pinkwashing in the slightest. I think that was then, um, well, within that sector, a bit of bit of bravery, actually. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I worked for Coops in the, in the 90s, and... The whole place at 440 Strand was so controlled that who could be seen on the, on the banking floor, which entrance you could come into, uh, which, which escalated you know, what, what you were allowed to wear as, as an employee. Yeah. Did they still have the frock coats? They still have frock coats then, yeah. yeah. And they used to have that massive revolving tree in, in the, uh, in the foyer right on the ground floor, which is, <laughs> used to rotate once every 24 hours really, really slowly. I didn't know that. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, you wouldn't notice because it rotated so slowly. Because uh, obviously they wanted the tree to grow upwards, not not twist and things into the sunlight. So they had to rotate Wasn't that it. Fantastic. <laughs> and the massive koi carp pond in the middle was yeah, like still, uh, there, yeah, still, yeah. still there. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I found it. I found it incredible. I mean, that night there were what a hundred, two hundred people in the foyer there. No, in, in a reception, celebrating, celebrating Pride, celebrating Coots's um, celebration of Pride with Queer Britain dead centre. That I, was, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, and and um, you know we've done other things with them as well. They've been sort of happy to um, introduce us to some of their clients. Um, they've been happy to um, yeah, hosted us for a donor dinner, um, and and actually just you know some of the. Um, some of the staff there there at the end of the phone when you need to talk things through. Yeah. Mm. 
So we're now in June, aren't we? So this is second of June, twenty twenty. Is it June? I've, I've lost. I've lost track. I, know, I, know. Lot, um, I actually googled the day the other day. <laughs> what day is it today? Oh. It's it's funny. My wife and I had this had this routine when she was being furloughed. We we lost track of days, so we got in the habit of waking up in the morning, shouting out the day of the week it was, so we both remember <laughs> what day of the week. Uh, and religiously, we always do pinch punch the first of the month. Uh, when we wake up in the morning, it's, it's, it's kind of like a commando assault on each other. The first one to get in wins. It's kind of like a, it's a ritual we've had for years. Um, and sometimes it can quite, get quite over the top. I wouldn't say violent, but certainly it gets a bit risky when we're sort of like leaping at each other. And I, I've got this app on my phone. I just realized that it's uh, my lockdown effectively starts on the 13th of March. And that's 11 weeks ago. And it's like, where's that time going? Yeah. That time uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, how are you coping with it all? How are you? Well, I've worked from home on and off for quite a while, uh, and in the last couple of years, quite a bit. But I'd always interspersed working from home or working remotely with trips to London, trips to clients, delivering, uh, traveling the world. So this is the first time I've I've been consciously at home so much. Uh, and occasionally I go a bit stir crazy. I need to get out. I've I realized that I haven't really been out much for four or five days. And even then it's just to put the bins out or have a quick look outside. Um, so we're, we're starting to make the most of the weekends now. Now we, now it's, uh, socially acceptable to, to, to be out more, to social distance more and to sort of put, put some deck chairs in a local park. So yeah, I'm coping. Okay. I've, I've got plenty to keep me busy. Uh, this podcast for one and, uh, mm-hmm. having conversations with people on zoom. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm doing all right. Mm-hmm. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been. I mean, you know, I'm 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 lucky, um, luckily lucky enough to be um, living in a sort of fairly rural part of North Essex. Um, so I, I don't. I have, we have shops just down the road, local shops just down the road. My husband's a gardener, so the garden's lovely. Um, I, I think it would be um, Churlish to say that I haven't been enjoying some aspects of that. I'm certainly not missing commuting. I was traveling about four hours a day. Um, so I'm not missing that at all. But it does make me think, you know, what would this be like for the, you know, a single parent living on the 17th floor? Mm. That's, um, you know, who doesn't have those luxuries? Must be tough. Yeah, it's it's not easy in those sorts of situations. We're we're in a first floor, two bed flat with one living room, so yeah, we we can get on top of each other, and we don't see a lot of the outside. There's not a lot out mm-hmm. there apart from a road, mm-hmm. so yeah, we we do need to get out a bit. But but yeah, you're right. There's a, a lot of people out there who are either living alone, who've been very isolated, yeah, or as you say, a single parent, or even worse, in some respects, a different problem where. There's multiple generations living in the same household, all trying to compete for space, internet, computers, tabletops, which can yes. be equally stressful. Because, uh, yeah, I think it, it, you know it can it can throw people together in into um, uh, emotional soups that um, mm. they might not have um, either wanted to find themselves in, or they may have had other way other releases for. And actually, as well. You know, it, for some queer people, particularly tough times. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you're if you're stuck with a um, if you're stuck in a hostile environment, if you're stuck in an environment where you can't be yourself, um, and there's no way of actually going out to the places where you can be yourself, um, if you're 
in the closet. Um, yeah, it must be must be very tough for. I, I think there are, there are particular challenges. I think for many uh, LGBTQ plus people. So the well, I think we're starting by saying that the Pride Month's cancelled. So there's a this was obviously a global celebration mm-hmm. month for for people. Uh, that all the marches, all the Pride events have now been virtualized. Um, it's hard to imagine some of them to, taking place over Zoom until until Eurovision. I mean, I I really <laughs> had an amazing night watching the Eurovision revisited the online version. The uh, the way that the uh, the production company still put an event on in a different way. Uh, and I thought it was fantastic. I, I thought they missed a trick, though. They, they could have still done the voting. They could have played all the songs and still had the voting. Uh, we could have all joined in still. Uh, do, do, do you know, I, I didn't see it, and I sometimes wonder if I'm not gay enough. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise there was a sliding scale. I, I didn't realise you, you, you could be a bit gay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very definitely. <laughs> So you're right. It's, it's impacting on people, and just the fact that they can't get out, they can't meet people, they can't be themselves. Uh, I'm hyper aware of the impact on people who maybe have uh, the gender identity, uh, the trans or, or non-binary, mm-hmm. where they live in a family environment or with people who they're not open with, they're not out, mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. that could be a real challenge. Uh, there's no way they can they can sort of get any respite in that situation, maybe unless they're Zooming, even though that's difficult. I know some some trans people who are out at work, but not yeah. out or not fully out at home or that, you know, they're, they're not out with their kids or they're living with in a marriage where it's not acceptable to be themselves. So work mm-hmm. is their, work is their respite. And now they have to do Zoom calls um, in, in an environment where they can't, they don't want to, Go back to their their birth gender for a Zoom call for work, but then they can't fully express themselves when they're in a household with other people. Is so it's a it's a real dilemma for certain people. Yeah, it must be. I mean, and I think this also goes to show, like where you know why the workplace for many people is is such an important place. Um, and I, I kind of I I often I shy away from this kind of use of the word authentic which kind of it does i think gets i think gets perhaps overused in a corporate setting but that said um where cultures within companies can be um made to uh, be in- inclusive and i'm not talking about diversity in the sense of headcounts and making sure that we've you know tick got one of them tick got one of them I'm talking about um, how do you make the workplace somewhere that actually you can feel celebrated in and accepted in, and um, and that you can bring your bring your best professional self to work in um, mm. without without worrying about too much of that other baggage. And there's not enough companies that are like that. Though. Are we getting better? It's obviously, a long way to go. But is it is it better than it was? I mean, certainly, I would say, I mean, obviously, I don't want to speak for trans, I certainly can't speak for trans people. Um, certainly as a, certainly as a gay man, seems better to me. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about, you know, where, 
a white middle class gay man sits on that um, privilege ladder within the sets of communities, then you know it's it's possible that I'm not getting the best view for other people. I, I suppose my experience is it, it's it, it's variable, it's yeah. situational, it's the the pockets of 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 issues and there, but there are, there are large swathes of, of places that are fully accepting i i spend most of my time in the world being embraced for who i am uh it could well be that i've got my my blinkers on and my my hearing aid turned down so i don't i don't hear the negativity but uh i don't experience i don't experience much of an issue these days but then again i'm white i'm, I'm relatively privileged and uh, I live in a, in a world that is quite comfortable. So, yeah, maybe I'm not the best judge. Yeah, and it comes back to the. It's funny. I always sort of think about the um, the William Gibson quote, um, which is uh, the fu- the future's here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And, <laughs> and and I think that's I think that's that's true. Um, and obviously, the the experience of somebody who is um, black and trans. Mm-hmm. Um, or sort of genderqueer in some other way, or um, is going to be very different than for somebody who um, looks like me. Uh, and it's also going to be different if, in the sort of company that you're working in, you're working in a big corporate that's uh, got um, policies kind of within an inch of their lives, or you're talking about people who are working in SMEs that are um, you know, maybe led by one. Um, entrepreneur who you know, may have opinions that haven't been filtered through an HR department. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, shooting from the hip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Quite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's. Yeah, the, the un, unfiltered politician speak, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from, from, from over the water. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's true. It's. I, I think you're right. I think companies who are uh, yeah, multinationals, big, big, big corporates tend to have great policies, great HR teams, great inclusion strategies, uh, employee, employee networks, staff groups that cover all different uh intersections of, of diversity but yeah I, th- I think in the small business community they either get it or they don't there's a real challenge there it's often hand to mouth watching the bottom line they they they're probably quite sexist still not let alone um homophobic or or transphobic or or biphobic yeah they're still struggling with the basics around uh around gender well, and let's face it, most of us have had a crap boss at some point um, that is, um, you know, creates toxic environments. Um, and that's a very tough, <laughs> very tough place to be if you're just trying, you know, you're going to, to, going to work to keep the wolf from the door, food on the table, and a roof over your head. And, um, you know, not necessarily going to work, going to work to change the world. Yeah, that's what you're right. I, I think. The world is moving slowly, though. The world is moving slowly, but it's moving. It, it's, I think, as each generation passes, each year passes, we're making progress. Maybe not enough progress for a lot of people, but we are making. I don't think we're going backwards yet. So let's let's see where we come. Well, do, do after you know, it's, fun, it's, it's funny though, because uh, you know the, the 
the way I kind of often think about this is that when I think about, okay, when I think about when I was a teenager and um, in theory could have been arrested for holding somebody's hands in public, another man's hands in public, if uh, somebody had complained and had reported that as it could have been reported as a breach of the peace. Um, let alone the fact that, you know, when I was 17 and I was living with my first boyfriend who was 19, uh, no, who was 20, sorry, <laughs> wasn't 19. I was 19. He was 23. And, uh, at that time he could have spent seven years in prison for, um, the relationship that we had. Mm. Um, forward fast, you know, to <laughs> however many years it is. And, you know the the idea that I can I can be married and um, live in a live very comfortably in a rural village without anybody seemingly batting an eyelid is great. The trouble is, is that when things um, when things move quickly, they can also unravel quickly mm. as well. Um, and you know, one of the you know the, the political reasons with a little p that I felt it was so important to um, drive this museum project forward is to help lock down those gains. It's like, what could be my part in helping lock down those gains um, and make sure that we are kind of um, properly positioned as ourselves, embraced in the heart of the mainstream without having to make those compromises about who we are. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what I'd really like to see. I, I agree. I, I think that that's where we've got to try and move society forward. Mm. We've got to try, as you say, capitalize on what we've got, what we've, the progress we've made, make sure that we can't go backwards because it only takes a, a different government, a different political bent, different priorities. I think we've seen that with the, uh, the frustration around the trans, uh, the gender reform, the, uh, the GRA. Gender yeah. Recognition Act consultation was put out. It was a priority for Theresa May's government. Uh, we had a number of equalities ministers championing it, speaking for it. The Labour leader spoke for it. And now it's being kicked into the long grass. And whether yeah. that'll ever, whether that'll ever, um, come back again, who knows whether it's going to be something that will never happen, what might happen. It's really, 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 um, it's very difficult to say, and of course, for many non-binary people and people and trans people who are not um, going through what was traditionally a medicalized process, they feel very vulnerable. That uh, mm. they're not going to get acceptance. There's, there's gatekeeping. There's talk about um, rolling back access for child services in terms of uh, yeah. young people's trans access to the gender identity services. So that, that's all quite worrying. And, and it's, it's, it's giving oxygen to mm. radical groups who are very small in number, but very loud. Yes. And they have the, yeah. they have the air of quite a few editors in, in big tabloids and broadsheets. Well, and I think you I see think- a, yeah. Sorry, no, sorry, go after you. As I say, you, know, you, you see a lot of, a lot of Sunday papers, um, printing kind of the, the negative trans stories about people detransitioning, about medical issues, about people who, um, about one child who sued their school for allowing gender neutral toilets. And these things hit the national papers, they get promoted, but we, 
And I, I spoke with the deputy social affairs editor for one of those papers recently. And he was telling me that they get hit with dozens or so stories every week from yeah. these vocal groups, um, all these negative stories. And I, and I said, well, why can't you print something that I want to talk about? And he said, well, tell me a story that's interesting. But getting on with your life, being happy, being a functional member of society isn't interesting. It's only interesting if something is, it creates a reaction. So I, I have to do something that was against my nature to be interesting. Whereas all the all other people seem to be doing is finding people who have had a bad experience and amplifying that. Yeah. Whereas the, yeah. the thousands and thousands of people who don't have a bad experience suddenly get, they have no voice. And the only voice you're hearing are the people with problems. And, and, and isn't that true as well? Where um, I'm a, you know, totally true when you talk about, you know, actually people don't want to be um, the subject of debate. They just sort of want to get on with their lives. And, um, I think a lot of the rhetoric, um, around trans people now in the media, um, actually very strongly echo how gay men were being talked about sort of 30 years ago. Um, it, it was, yeah, it, it, it's quite, um, interesting, interesting and salutary to see how, um, history, history, you, you can read history to make sense of, what's happening now. And actually, if you look at um, how, say, gay men and lesbians were spoken about all that time ago, um, how, how, you know, what are the similarities and the correlations between that and the way that trans people are talked about now in those uh, settings? I mean, similar messages, uh, yeah. disbelieving, disbelieving is real. Mm-hmm. Um, we can fix you. You don't have to do this. Um, you don't phase. know your, you're just a phase. You don't know your own mind or yeah. that's, that's not normal. That's not the biology. The world wasn't designed for people to be anything other than men being men and women being women. And a marriage is a, a, a relationship between two people of different sexes mm-hmm. or genders. And that's, we're hearing the same stuff again. And it's, uh, to say that people don't know their own mind, they don't, they don't have this lived experience. And then, and then demonizing people as being predatory when there's such a minority of cases where a predatory person uses the fact they, to say they're trans to, to, to be predatory. It's, it's such a rare occurrence. I mean, why, why add the stigma well, of saying it, um, trans? Is it even, is it even a rare occurrence? I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? That it, is it, uh, is, isn't it that when those stories tend to be looked at, they're, um, unsupported anecdotal stories that have been, um, really used to just sort of whisk up some fear. Um, they've been you know, quite often, um, put out by somebody from the, um, Christian right. And I do mm-hmm. mean that in a very, you know, when I talk about the Christian right there, I mean that in a very specific way. Um, you know, I talk about those people who would use the Bible to, um, deny basic human rights. Um, and it's also that kind of, isn't it just a bit boring? And like, how long can you describe people using terms around the shock of the new? How long mm. can you, how long, how, how often can you have headlines about this, you know, um, uh, outrageous new, trans trend 
it's just it's such nonsense and you can't say that same thing again and again and again and it'd be true but yeah but we but we see well-meaning schools well-meaning government local government all trying to do what they think is the right thing yeah. suddenly facing lawsuits facing people who are anti-trans for whatever reason trying to unpick the equality act and reword it to suit their own objectives um mm-hmm. basically just make stuff up that around it and then because everyone's so risk adverse they think that the status quo <clears throat> is is the default option rather than saying yeah. well actually the status quo is no longer the default option trans people have had change they've had access to services they've had access to to live and now they're finding those protections roll back because everyone's too scared but it's going too quickly and and haven't been uh, and aren't trans people just about excuse me that's, that's my mother for, oh <laughs> she can join in <laughs> that's my mother on the phone oh, I've just lost her oh I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> hi mum <laughs> hello mum you're on a you're on a you're on a podcast at the moment <laughs> you're on a I'm being interviewed for a pod we're having a conversation for a podcast at the moment <laughs> that's my mum say hello to, say hello to Joe. <laughs> Hi, mum. Hi, mum. There you go. Hi, Call you later. Bye-bye. Well, that's the new norm, isn't it? We have to bring our whole family to work at the moment, so... Um, right, that has stopped my voice memo, so I'm going to start that again. Right, okay. Where were we? I think we're just talking about the, the rights of... Uh, certainly trans people being kind of questioned and erased in some respect uh, by people who are risk adverse and the loud vocal kind of, as you, as you described them, the Christian right. Well, I wonder, I wonder as well um, if, because part of it, part of the culture wars where, you know, a few years ago we had the defense of the Mar- of marriage act um, in the States uh, that was tra- you know, defining gay defining marriages between one man and one woman. Um, in a way, that became a proxy for um, a different sort of culture war, for the, for the culture wars. And um, it feels like, you know, as, as the argument for same-sex marriage has been largely won for now, um, it's moving into you know, where, where is the next frontier that they can use to probe and try and kind of break down um, coalitions that can exist between trans people, lesbians, gay people. Um, how can feminism be used as a way of um, clawing people apart from each other um, as opposed to doing the thing that it really should be doing, which is about bringing everybody together as uh, equals. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought it was interesting that Ruth Hunt was speaking in the House of Lords the other day around her support for trans yeah. equality. And whilst not everybody loved her or in her role at Stonewall, she, she did certainly advance the, uh, the focus of Stonewall to look at trans rights and, and bring it to focus at Stonewall. Way overdue. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could we could debate whether she was effective at that, whether it was authentic. But at the end of the day, Stonewall now have a trans positive element, and they do a lot of trans awareness trained to organisations which uh, love them or hate them. They they're doing a fantastic job at doing something. And yeah, I think great. Doing, and I, doing I'm, something. I'm, I'm so glad that they are. I'm so glad that mm. they are. Um, Yes, it needs it needs to happen, and, and actually, I think anything that can um, anything that can um, keep the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q closer together means that we'll be stronger. Or just come together as Q is kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the wonderful what? thing about that is is that people, you know, what I really love is the you know, if people can, you know, people could just be. Like be whoever you are, be whoever you want to be. Um, yes, because it, it doesn't really matter, does it? As long as you're come from a position of kindness, then mm. you just want to get on with your life. People don't generally want to be bad people. And 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 actually, you know, this is the you know this is one of the interesting things through history is that by and large, people have kind of got on with their lives, um, and you know they've worked their way round the systems. Um, as much as they can, and um, this is no different. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm watching the news. I'm sure you are following uh, what's going on in America at the moment yeah. um, about some of the rhetoric coming out of the White House, <laughs> some of the uh, statements, and but there's the upswell of support around the globe for um, to call out racism. To being vocal, being an ally, but it does it does still show that no matter how far we think we've come, racism is still prevalent in most societies in the Western world. It, it's it's just below the surface. Homophobia, biphobia, transphobia are just below the surface. And I think if you if you're not if you amplify those uh, supremacy type voices then it doesn't take much for these views to surface it, it, in clusters here and there. And I think we've got to be careful. Isn't, isn't it about the, the you know, the, um, the ruthlessness of the um, urge to power, um, which uh, when you get a particular kind of, say, you know, character like Trump, for example, and I'm not saying, you know, I think, I think Trump is a symptom. He's um um, he's not the sole problem, but um, when that kind of when when that sort of power is trying to establish and preserve itself, or is trying to preserve itself, it doesn't really care who it throws under the bus in order to protect its own position. Um, and and actually divide and conquer. Well, that's you know, it's a classic tactic, isn't it? Um, mm. And and I, I imagine as well that. You know, for a lot of um, a lot of black people in in the states and in the UK, um, probably what they're going to be, I, I would imagine that they're going to be not surprised to see um, the um, the film that the films that have really disturbed every have disturbed other people have disturbed actually you know, lots of white people mm. because I think probably what they're going to be saying is. Yeah, you know, this is this is this is what we experience as black people all the time. This is this is why black kids get you know uh, are so often taught by their parents how to um, 
how to not attract the attention of police as they're walking out in the street. This is why you know people are worried when they go out jogging in nice neighbourhoods. You know, nice meaning you know white and wealthy. Yes, that perception that a black person out for a run with a hoodie on is likely to be there for nefarious purposes rather than be there just to go for a run. Yeah, yeah, true. Completely true. It's something I don't experience, even as a trans person. I don't perceive that people perceive me as a a threat and a criminal in that way. They may perceive me in other ways. Well, they clearly never, don't know you. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> but no, I, I've never, I've never experienced that kind of guilt by perception type. Uh, yeah. I, okay. I, I've, I've, like yourself, I've, I've experienced discrimination in employment, in opportunity, but never being judged as a, as a criminal without, without cause um, or, or some of the impact that racism has on people. So I've, ne- I've never experienced that. And I can only have so much, I can only have a little bit of empathy because I, I, I can't understand the full impact of it. I, I know, yeah. I, I know what I feel about having to cover, having to pass, having to maybe because my voice is quite deep. I, I, I'm cautious about how I speak in certain company. Mm-hmm. If I'm on the train, I'm conscious about if I shout out for a cup of coffee, it could uh, cause some sort of kind of confusion amongst the people around me. So I'm very cautious about that. But that, that's nothing compared with um, a black youth just being themselves, if you like. Um, how does how does that make you feel? I mean, what does that do to what does that do to you on a an emotional level or an intellectual level? I feel on an emotional level. Um, well, I suppose what I'm doing is I'm trying to protect myself from having a, a further situation. So it's better to <clears throat> to control myself to maybe whisper or not to ask for a cup of coffee or if I'm out with my wife, sometimes I say, can you go and have that conversation, please? Because I really can't be doing with having to out myself effectively to the waiter or to the person serving or to someone who I want to, we're trying to get some help from. I think mm-hmm. it's just easy if you go speak to them because I don't really want to bring me into the equation. Uh, so I've, I've kind of got used to that, but you're right. It, it's, it's holding back. It's, mm. it's not, I'm not bringing my whole self to the world. Mm-hmm. Bring my mm-hmm. society. So yeah, it it does impact, and my wife and I are, are conscious about holding hands, kissing in public, yeah. like many like many queer people do, mm-hmm. uh, which I find really confusing because she doesn't look any different to me. So well, <laughs> maybe a bit older and a bit, a bit more gorgeous, <laughs> but yeah, she's matured well. Isn't it funny though how you know um, a kiss, a kiss between partners can be politicised? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we used to, um, we used to go to a lot of natural trust walks, do a lot of natural trust houses. And we would, we would find cubby holes behind doors or, or behind a curtain somewhere. And we'd have a quick snog. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we were really devilish because we were, we were being kind of naughty behind the cupboard sort of thing. Um, as grown adults, but we just didn't feel brave enough or open enough to be able to sort of just show public signs of affection, hold hands, walking around a national trust building. Well, I, I had a I had a funny moment, um, and you know my my um, my experience is you know because it's, it's again it's it's very gentle I think compared with what many people have to experience. But 
I found myself, uh, I think only about five or six years ago, um, and I was in a local shop near where we just moved into, the house that we just moved into, and uh, went to buy a bottle of wine and the woman serving. Nice as pie. Oh, your wife will be pleased with that. Obviously, I'm wearing a wedding ring. And um, I, I had a, almost like a weird out-of-body experience where I, the thought process went, well, first of all, I blushed because um, I thought, well, I, I, can't, I can't just let that pass because somehow that feels like that's letting my lovely husband down and not kind of respecting that relationship that I have with him. And then there's the conflict of not wanting to be, not wanting to be antsy or awkward or, you know, rude. And, um, and then the next thought thinking, Oh my God, you know, I, I used to like, I'm as out as it's possible to be. Yeah. You Google my name, you know, it is gay, gay, gay out there. Like, so you, you, you can't get away. I, 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 there's no going back into the closet for me, thankfully. Not that I'd want to, but. But I just thought, like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I also just thought, you know, if, if, if that is how I felt, you know, former editor of Gay Times, um, somebody who's been very, been very well supported by his mother, who you just met. <laughs> um, Somebody who has, you know, is in his, uh, at the time in his early forties and, you know, been, you know, been there, done that. What is it going to be like for somebody who is not so sure of their themselves? What is it going to be like for that, for that person who is a, like a, like a young person who hasn't yet come out the closet or is struggling to come out the closet or is uh, struggling with our identity issues? And I, I don't know, I just felt in that moment, it was like, well, I, I have to say something because for that person, I can't leave that unsaid. Um, and so just actually very kind of politely, it was just like, oh, husband actually is. Um, and of course, you know, nothing more was said. It was just like, oh, well, enjoy your wine, you know, and obviously because these situations with, we're kind of almost trained to, think that these things are going to be much bigger than they will mm. be in the moment. But God, it's complicated. That whole series of thoughts that you, you can oh, have. I was at my, my wife's Christmas party, uh, with her office, uh, colleagues and she started introducing me as her other half. Mm. And, uh, I sort of laughed at her because. I I used to introduce her as my other half in the, in the, in the distant past. And she, kind of didn't get upset with me, but she kind of went, oh, other half, oh, a bit on the side. It sounds a bit, yeah, I'm your wife sort of thing. Uh, and then to hear her introduce me as her other half, I sort of said, well, and she said, well, I thought about it. I said, she said, uh, well, because you're not my wife, because, yeah, technically and, and legally I'm still a husband. I haven't changed that role, really. I don't identify as oh. wife in that way. And... To call me husband uh, when I was in a cocktail dress didn't sound right either. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and partner didn't quite work either. So she, we kind of fell back to, uh, other half as being kind of a, a nondescript uh, of we're together and everyone knew she was married to me, but to describe me as it didn't, 
it's just a, a very neutral way of describing me, the people who mm. knew we were married. It was, uh, but yeah, you've got, you've got to double think these things, haven't you? It's no longer can you just go through life just using everyday language that other people, other straight, normal, typical people use. <laughs> we, we have to sort yeah, of normal. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Is it interesting? Whatever, whatever normal is. <laughs> but yeah, whatever the, 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 the sort of the societal norms, um, Whatever people use who have never questioned any part of their identity, they just, they just do. They don't think about what they do. Yeah. Having to double think everything, having to work out the risk, the reward, the impact. Am I going to come across as pedantic? Am I going to come across as, uh, oh, really? Oh, another gay person trying to make trouble or trying to, yeah. So you just, you almost like have to have to think about the impact of what you say back, do you? And I, Every time I'm misgendered, do I make a big deal of it or don't I? When I talk about my wife, do mm-hmm. I say partner? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm talking on the phone to somebody, oh yeah, my partner will be down quick, down soon. Does it? Do I say? Do I say wife? Sometimes I just use language that just makes it easier for me not to have to explain it. And I think that's probably what you're saying there as well. Yeah, and I mean, uh, do you ever feel like you kind of also? trip up on those things for other people is there any anxiety around getting the language right and what doing it deliberately for other people well not not deliberately but the kind of accidental um say around uh misgendering for example um i i misgender people occasionally um i i misgender myself sometimes I've described myself as the eldest of three brothers before. Um, mm-hmm. I, I ended up correcting myself and saying, well, actually, I'm the eldest of three children or the eldest of three siblings. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, I've corrected the language on myself. I sometimes refer to myself in, in the third party sometimes, and I, I sometimes misgender myself historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but no, it, it's – I am. I, I've, I've slipped up with people before – Someone was telling me about they were going to be a grandparent. I said, "Oh, it must be really great to be a granddad." And I thought, mm-hmm. "Oh, actually, that's just misgendered you." Haven't I? You're, um, I haven't actually asked you how you want to identify it in relation to that child. I suppose it's that building. <laughs> it's the um, it's the I've, I've built assumptions in without letting you yeah. tell me what what it is that you want. How, but how do I feel? describe how do I describe myself in relation to my my brother's children? Um, I, I, am I an uncle? Am I an auntie? Am I What's the sort of the non-gendered term? I know, I know, a niece and a nephew. The the non-gendered terms are nibbling. I'm not sure what the reverse. A nibbling. I've never heard a that nibbling. before. Uh, apparently, apparently, it's a nibbling. Is a is a non-gendered um, brother or sister of a parent. But I'm not sure what the the, the reverse is whether of, of an aunt or an uncle. The non-gendered version of that is so. I don't nibbling. Know. I like that. I like nibbling. That's, nibbling. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's language the constructs i guess i guess we're all working around them aren't we i think yeah i mean yes yeah very very much and actually I, it's funny we're um it, it's interesting how i mean obviously where we're at now with this pandemic um with sort of everything that's going on we're um we're about to launch a piece of, well, we're just we're in the process of launching a piece of research that we're doing with Goldsmiths and Kent State University in Ohio. Um, 
which is going to be a research project that's going to look about look at not only experiences in uh, queer queer people's experiences um, across the UK in pandemic, um, but it's also going to be looking at that question as to sort of how does um, how do these kind of times uh, affect senses of identity. Um, this is a little bit of a sideways kind of um, thought from what we were talking about, but you know, I just, I, I wonder how identities are going to change as we come out the other side of this. Yeah. I often have this, a similar thought when I think about the, the Robinson Crusoe kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. If I was alone on a desert Island, who would I be or how would I be or what would I be? I guess I would re-identify as a, as a survivor prim- primarily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a human being trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think identity is, is relative to your scenario, surroundings. And when we're in lockdown, we, we're, we're kind of almost like in a, in a smaller bubble. So our identity is, is more limited. We, we don't have to, we're not expressing it to anybody. We're not being it to anybody. We're not who we are with anybody else. We're just within our own heads. So how do we maintain that identity when no one can see us, no one can hear us, no one can feel us? Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, you know, we have all got multiple, multiple identities in uh, uh, different times and with different people, different parts of those come to the front. So, you know, are you a uh, husband, son, bad guitar player, um, shoddy singer, uh, someone who's trying to set up a museum, um, nephew, um, uh, bloke who likes a bit of banter in the shops on a Saturday morning, um, any neighbor, all of these things are different kinds of identities, which, which all in the round make us who we are. Um, but I mean, even the funny thing is, is, you know, when you think about a name, I mean, these are all social constructs as well, because, you know, you're not, um, I'm not, I'm not Joe. You're not Joe. That's just a label that's been stuck on you. Yeah. That's not, that's not nothing intrinsic about who, to who you are. We're just this collection of atoms here assembled in this particular way at this particular moment yeah. in time. If yeah. that's not too esoteric. Yeah, we could just be seven of nine, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, just de- yeah. defined by where where we where we live or where we sit. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A third person from the right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is. I guess. Yeah, it's just a way of. I guess a way of controlling, policing, organising, helping us fit, identify each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. It's probably less um, less devaluing than describing a feature of you. If you have a name, it, it doesn't become is that Joe with the glasses? Well, which Joe, which Joe with the glasses? <laughs> Joe, oh, Joe with the glasses and the long hair. No, it's, it's yeah, Joe Lockwood yeah. sort of thing. So we, yeah, we can yeah. we, we create a, a, an in, a name and a label that isn't relative to how we look or where we're from. I suppose. Yeah, and I guess the, you know, the you know, at the end of the day, how do we just? allow ourselves to be ourselves. And, and that sounds like a, a great moment to ask you kind of, uh, where's the world going from now then? Where, 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 where's, uh, what's your predictions for the, the lockdown and the communities and 
<sighs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of making predictions. I mean, I certainly would have, have hopes. Um, I hope that this is one of those moments, and uh, including actually, you know, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all interconnected. You know, what's happening in the states at the moment, the pandemic, um, and I would hope that out of this we'll we'll emerge with a greater sense of community, better sense of values about what's important and what's just jaws. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't dream of predicting. I wouldn't dream of predicting. What do you think? Where do you think we're going? Uh, I oscillate between um, hope that we won't go backwards, uh, that we'll learn a lot from this. But then I see what's going on at the beaches. I see what people are doing the moment they're allowed to go out, allowed to unlock. Old behaviours are coming back very quickly. the anti-government rhetoric starting up again, the politicalness is starting up again, the division is starting up again. So I, I'm not sure we'll learn all the lessons. Uh, will we see this as a, a sad time, a happy time, or a time for learning? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think. It, I'd like to. I'd like to see where we are now as a time for learning, the great social experiment, and hopefully we'll take stuff from this. And learn from it. And it's all and, of those things, isn't it? Yeah. It's all, it's all of those things. So too many people have lost things for everyone to be happy. So so I think we have to find a way of uh, helping the people who've lost a lot, but also allowing those people to recognize what they have gained. I think we've gained a lot. People are speaking to people they've never spoken to before or haven't spoken to in a long time. They're spending more time with the families, that the children are spending more time with their parents. We're, we're commuting less, uh, pollution's down. <clears throat> so there's a whole lot of stuff we can take from it. And let's, let's hope we keep the good stuff and, uh, chuck the bad stuff out with the bathwater, not the baby. <laughs> as, as, as I guess an anxious optimist, I'd, um, I'd say that I, you know, I really do hope that I, I, th- I think it's really important that in however tough times are, you know, we've got to kind of like make sure that um, positives can be taken out of them. Um, and, you know, I really hope that that's, that's the case now. Obviously, I'm anxious about straightened times. Um, I'm anxious about the things that people have lost. I'm anxious about all of those things. But I'm also hopeful that um, greater community can come out of this. Well, many thanks, Joe. Yeah. I'm sure we'll all agree there's much there to ponder and take inspiration from. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, if you um, if you go to uh, www.queerbritain.org.uk, that's a website for the, uh, for the, uh, the charity or for the museum, um, or you can drop me a line to hello at queerbritain.org.uk. And, um, yeah, comments, thoughts, ideas... How can we help? <laughs> All welcome. Fantastic. Well, a huge thanks to everyone today for tuning in and listening. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please tell your friends and colleagues. I have a number of exciting guests lined up, and I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. If you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. I would welcome any feedback and suggestions to joe.lockwood 
at cchappen.co.uk for the future shows and how we can improve. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been a pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.